I'm Carmine Gallo, author of The Bezos Blueprint, Communication Secrets of the World's Greatest Salesman, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Carmine Gallo to talk about his book, The Bezos Blueprint, Communication Secrets of the World's Greatest Salesman, published by St. Martin's Press. Carmine Gallo is a Harvard instructor, best-selling author, and international keynote speaker. A communications guru, according to Publishers Weekly, Carmine coaches CEOs and leaders for the world's most admired brands. Carmine's best-selling books, including Talk Like Ted and The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs, have been translated into more than 40 languages. His expertise in business and leadership has been featured in The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Success Magazine, and on MSNBC, CNBC, CNN, and ABC's 2020. And, interesting fact, he also spent 15 years as a television news anchor. Carmine, congratulations on the Bezos Blueprint, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Hi, Douglas. Thank you so much for that uh, enthusiastic introduction. I appreciate it. I've, I've actually been very excited to talk to you because not only do I listen to your podcast, but I think I have met the only person or the, one of the few people who has read more books than I do. And that's rare. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I, that's what I love doing. And I, I, it's, such, it's so exciting for me to be able to talk to, to people like you. We are going to talk about the importance of reading and just warm the cockles of this knuckleheaded podcaster's heart. But first, before we get started, I want to ask you, you were a television news anchor. Did you ever run into a guy named Ron Burgundy? <laughs> uh, I, I ran into many of the Ron Burgundy types, yes. Uh -huh. Okay. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. So... That's interesting because I know you know you're in California. He was down in in San Diego, and you know mm -hmm. he's sort of my spirit animal. But um, the other thing that this book is just phenomenal. It's obviously going to be a you know another Wall Street Journal bestseller. I had so much fun reading it. But also uh, for the last week, when I have been reading it to prepare for this interview with Carmine Gallo, I have been drinking nonstop Gallo wine, even have this you? morning. Yeah, yeah. It's been, it's, it's, it, I don't remember much from the book, but I've really had a good time. But you've had a good time drinking. Yeah, yeah. That, absolutely. Today's Gallo, all the best a wine can be. 
So are you any relation to the Gallo wine folks? It is a very common surname in oh, I see. in southern Italian, in southern Italy. So I am not directly related to the Gallo wine family, uh, but I certainly consume my fair share of wine. So Good. that's my connection. Yeah, well, you know, we all got to do what we can do individually to help them out. And I would hope that if you ever go to, you know, tastings at any of their facilities, you know, maybe you mention your name and get half price drinks or something Every like that. Every once in a while that could happen. Oh, Mr. Gallo, please, we have the best <laughs> seat at the table for That's you. right. That's right. Well, let me just jump into a quick excerpt from the beginning of the book and get into it here. I want to quote from the first page. You write, this book It's not about Bezos the billionaire or Amazon the e-commerce juggernaut. Those subjects are covered in other books and in endless debates about the role of wealth or the impact of Amazon's influence in the economy. No, this book is about something more fundamental that applies to each and every reader. The Bezos blueprint focuses on an overlooked and underappreciated part of the Amazon growth story, a topic that's foundational to the success of your life and career, communication. And then over to page four, you write, I want you to explain this, Carmine. Bezos is not the world's greatest salesman because Amazon sells everything to everybody. He's the world's greatest salesman because he sells dreams, not products. Douglas, that's really good. I should have had you do the narration for the audiobook. Oh, well, I can only do <laughs> it in short really bursts. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I spent a week. I spent a week <laughs> oh, in you a did. San Francisco studio, almost you know five, six, seven hours a day. But the audiobook that comes out is narrated by the author, as they say. Well, so, perfect. Yeah. So what's the question? Getting back to the question. Uh, yes. Yes. I, well, I wanted to be very clear right out of the gate. The world's that, greatest salesman, I think, yeah. would be misunderstood because they sell everything. But yes. you say, no, no, you're missing the point. He's the greatest salesman because he sells dreams, not products. So let's think about why this story was irresistible to me. Uh, Why I even wrote this book. I think the story is irresistible, but the lessons to be learned are powerful and actionable. Jeff Bezos, 1994, has a bold idea to sell books online. Most people said, in fact, almost everyone said it could not be done. And what's this internet thing anyway? (laughs) That was the most common question he received. What's the internet? He did not have a name for the company. His boss tried to talk him out of it. How many times have you heard, stop chasing that pipe dream? You're not cut out for it. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to guard against the status quo bias. People like things the way they are. They can't see a bigger vision. But here you've got an entrepreneur, Bezos, relentlessly pursuing his vision and having to persuade others to join him. That's where it becomes actionable because Bezos pioneered communication strategies that former Amazonians who worked with them later adopted to start their own companies, to market their products. So these are strategies that apply to every person listening to this podcast. And these are being used at places like Best Buy, Whole Foods, J.P. Morgan, Hulu, and scores of other brands that are household names, you write. I, I, was, I was not aware of that. I've heard about some of the things in the book, but I didn't realize what a, uh, a prairie fire, the ideas in it had how they had come from uh, from Amazon. I, I just want to mention one thing that you you talk about at the very beginning of the book and how 
Jeff Bezos really prioritized learning. And one of the things, there's this one line from the book on page five that just, now this is, this is about me for just a brief moment, really spoke to me about why I do this podcast. And it is, the moment you think you know it all is the moment you stop growing. Oh. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? I will settle down at some point and uh, take. I, I I do I do like the sound effects. Okay, well, Don't good. Worry. Well, you, yep. you probably shouldn't say that, and the listeners are probably now saying, "Oh, Carmine, please don't don't encourage this guy." Let's just oh, get the, to your oh, book. Oh no, the listeners who know you better, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Just a couple things I wanted uh, I wanted to ask you about from the beginning, and and maybe some folks have heard this, but they need a good reminder. You write communication and leadership skills are more critical today than at any time in human history. Remind folks of why that is. Well, because we're a knowledge economy. So uh, the currency that we have to trade with uh, is our ideas. You're only as valuable as the ideas you have to share. If you cannot persuade another person to come along on that journey uh, or to back or support your ideas, then you're going to be left behind or at least not aspire um, or elevate your career nearly as successfully as you otherwise would have if you're a better persuader, communicator, simplifier. Um, and there are there are so many examples of that, but recently I've been a fan of the former PepsiCo CEO, Indra Nui, who I mentioned in the Bezos Blueprint because uh, after she left PepsiCo, she joined the board of Amazon. She said she wanted to be in the front row of yes. one of the most innovative companies. Uh -huh. So I've been, I, I read up on Indra Nui. Well, whenever Indra Nui talks publicly or in her books, she always comes back to communication skills because she'll talk to like audiences of entrepreneurs or professionals or women-oriented um, audiences, and she'll always say communication is the most fundamental skill that you can develop. And then she'll go further and talk about why the ability to simplify complexity is more important than ever, because we are being bombarded. All of your listeners are being bombarded and overwhelmed by information, both on social media and in their lives. The ability to kind of cut through that, to simplify complex information and make it clear and understandable, that's a powerful skill, especially now more than ever. And Bezos was someone who constantly thought about, how do I simplify this? Because when people ask, what's the internet? Uh, that's a significant stumbling block to get people to actually put in a credit card and buy online. So he was a big simplifier, and that's one of the Amazon leadership principles today is a simplify. Yes, and, and actually, just to follow up on the other point, you quote McKinsey and LinkedIn about I, – I was just a little surprised at how much communication skills, how much higher they are than <laughs> like – Programming languages and uh, some of these other things that people seem to think about. Hey, look, I, I talked to uh, product um, marketing. So pro there's, as you know, there's a whole category called product marketing, product marketers, and uh, product managers uh, as well. Two different categories, but they still work with product. And the ones who the ones who grow 
and develop more as professionals, who leapfrog others, tend to be the ones who can speak multiple languages. And I don't mean language uh, in terms of cultural language. I mean the language of finance, the language of engineering, the language of uh, the leadership. They can bridge all of those different uh, words, language, terminology, they're, they're better communicators, mm-hmm. and they can translate the language of engineering for the finance people, or they can translate what the marketing folks know, or what the marketing folks need to the engineers who are working on the product. Uh, more often than not, and that's why product managers and product marketers have told me, my ability, their ability to communicate, uh, to persuade, to do public speaking, to be to be better communicators, are an essential component of their success in that category. So I, I think this applies to uh, this applies to everyone, uh, from scientists and technical people to students, aspiring leaders, C-suite leaders, uh, anyone who wants to elevate their professional career in any way. Yes, yes. So back to the simplification, the first chapter is titled Simple is the New Superpower. Can you talk about how Bezos, some of the ways he simplifies complex information and what listeners can do to start making Simple their new superpower? This was one of the most exciting discoveries I made in the several years of research as I was looking at Amazon and talking to former Amazonians. His share, uh, Bezos wrote 24 or so shareholder letters over uh, a little over two decades. So shareholder letters, is, as you all know, are the kind of letters that Warren Buffett's been writing for something like 50 or 60 years for Berkshire Hathaway. Um, and his letters and Bezos's letters uh, are models of clarity and simplicity. How do you take these complex ideas and make them simple? So uh, Warren Buffett was really good at metaphors. Uh, When he said that I look for investments that are like castles and surrounded by moats, Uh, moats is now very common vocabulary in in the stock world or on CNBC. You always hear analysts say, oh, we like that investment because it's surrounded by a moat. Mm-hmm. Well, that simply means that it's hard for competitors to uh, take the castle, right, to enter mm-hmm. the category. That came from Warren Buffett. So he was really good at speaking in metaphor. Bezos was really good at simplifying. So here's the big discovery I made. Uh, if you look at 24 letters, the early letters if you put them through an analyzer like Grammarly um, or other software that analyzes the quality of writing, and we're going to talk about what that means, quality of writing, but you'll see that the early letters were written at uh, 10th grade level, some mm-hmm. college level. As After about 2007, as Amazon grew in complexity, because now they're into cloud computing and AI, very complex subjects, the writing got simpler, and pretty soon he was writing more for eighth grade level, which is what Amazon writing classes prefer. And they actually tell their uh, their employees in writing classes, strive to write at an eighth grade level. That does not mean that you're dumbing down the content in any way. It means that you're taking complex ideas and using short words to talk about hard things. You're using shorter sentences. You're getting to the point faster. Uh, 
that to me, that's what I mean by uh, this whole growth mindset that we talked about earlier. He's constantly evolving, constantly growing, and becoming a better writer. But what I think is counterintuitive, Douglas, and I bet it's counterintuitive to a lot of the people listening, is that you're a better writer when you simplify and make the writing appealing to or readable to a lower grade level, more like 7th and 8th grade level. And that doesn't mean you're dumbing down the content, you're outsmarting the competition, because what you're doing is making it easier for people to digest the information. You're saving them a lot of mental energy. So let me just add uh, to that from page 21, where you write, simplicity, creating cognitive ease is a theme that runs throughout this book. You'll learn why the human brain is wired to remember stories more easily than random facts. I'll take a deep dive into two rhetorical techniques that Bezos uses as mental shortcuts to explain complex theories, metaphors, and analogies. And you'll learn why leaders on the fast track use the fewest number of words to reach the top. Simplicity is all about knowing and selecting, knowing your audience and selecting the information your audience needs to know. So you quoted Winston Churchill. So I want to go back in history for just a moment where he said, short words are best and old words, when short, are best of all. So explain <laughs> explain what ancient words and fancy words are and, and what the, the connection is between those two. Yes. Uh, Douglas, I'm glad you brought that up, and I can explain that on a, on a podcast. It's a little harder to explain on a, tw- on a Twitter post. And it actually goes here. all the way back to the year 1066, I think, but we don't have to go that so we far. Have a lot of, we have a lot of explaining. Yeah, No, it, you, we do have to go back that far, but I'll shorten it. I had to go back to school. Full disclosure. Full disclosure, I've written 10 books, but I had to go back to writing class because you cannot write a book and cover writing unless you advance the subject in some way. Uh, And you better be a a good writer or at least understand uh, some of these fundamentals. So when I I saw that quote from Churchill, I I had that quote uh, roaming around my head for a long time. And the story is that in 1940, uh, during the Battle of Britain, bombs were falling on London, and Churchill did not have enough time to read the very, very long convoluted memos that his staff was sending him. So he sent them a memo simply titled, titled Brevity. That was the name, that was the title he gave to the memo. And that's where he said, we simply do not have the time to find the essential points. He was saying, get to the point, just like your, your readers are probably saying to themselves when they get your email, that's too long. Mm-hmm. Get to the point. He, was, he didn't have email. They were memos, but it's the same concept. And then he said the quote that you had, uh, short words are best and old words when short are best of all. <laughs> I love just a, what a brilliant writer. And so I contacted uh, English language experts and people who actually teach English as a second language and historians. 1066, the Norman invasion, it was a key milestone in the development of the English language. And that is where romance and Latin-based words were introduced to the English vocabulary and often replaced the shorter words that were more familiar. And so the we still do that today. Okay, that's what's fascinating to me. And that's what I learned through all this. When you want to give a direction or an instruction, 
that is clear and to the point and understandable and really memorable, we intuitively go back to the short words. If I were to tell you we're, we're leaving the house and I were to say, um, I want you to turn off the lights, I would just say, turn off the lights when you leave the house. Turn off the lights when you leave the house. Those are all one syllable words. I would not tell my daughter, uh, upon departing the premises, <laughs> reduce the illumination. So if you look up, uh, turn off the lights, house, if you look up all those words in an etymology dictionary that looks at the historical origins of words, those are all old English words. So we tend to go back to those short, simple words when we want to get a point across. Wear a mask, Douglas. Wear a mask, right? <laughs> like mm -hmm. healthcare communicators. Healthcare communicators understand this. They study this. Uh, so this whole idea is fascinating to me. But from a standpoint of the, the business professional and the marketer, uh, get to the point. How do you get to the point? By using short words, simple sentences. Don't make it more convoluted than you have to. And yet we, we tend to do that, especially in presentations. Mm -hmm. uh, we tend to think that using big words and convoluted sentences makes us sound more intelligent. But when you study Bezos or Warren Buffett or, or uh, very senior leaders who are visionary and innovative and who are considered really good communicators, Steve Jobs, I wrote a whole book on Jobs, they tend to use very short, simple words to communicate big ideas. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a fascinating area. And it, does, it applies not just to English, right? I've asked people who are, uh, who are experts in different languages like Spanish, and they have very similar phrases for getting to the point. Mm -hmm. Right, getting to the point, get to it fast, use short words, too complicated. They have, they have very similar phrases. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it does apply. Yeah, I've. Uh, in, in you mentioned Japanese in Japan. Culture. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. in Japanese culture does apply as well. So it's, it's, a, it's universal. You know, people want short, simple words. Uh, I, obviously, English is, uh, you know, widely spoken. So it's easier to use that as an example. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly. It, it, it applies to every look all brains are the same okay you know we, we're we've grown up in different countries different cultures different languages but the human brain is still the same we want information that is short simple clear and to the point mm -hmm. and uh our brains are the same and they're still pretty prehistoric <laughs> yeah. We still have a cave-dwelling ancestor's brain despite all the technology that in, in which we swim TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. 
For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. Jumping ahead, you you talk about how you wrote this book to help us navigate the gray area where persuasion and clear communication thrive. So I just wanted the listener to know that chapter three has seven writing tips, and we're not going to go through all of them, but I wanted to ask you about one or two. Because there's oh, because there's so there's so many. There's yeah. seven. Well, which actually goes against my rule of three. I, I'm a big, yes. <laughs> I'm a big proponent of three points. Yes, not seven. But I had to put seven because uh, there were there's a lot more than seven. But that was my way of condensing it. Well, and thank you for condensing it. But let's <laughs> let's talk about one of them: active voice versus passive voice. Why is active voice, in nearly every instance, so much more effective? I I I know it's most writers uh Stephen King especially Stephen King hates the passive voice. He said it's ruined pretty much every business communication ever. Uh and I'm beginning I shouldn't say I'm beginning to understand it. I was a journalist so I do understand it. Uh but in doing the research for this I I now see why it's more important. Uh it's because the active voice for those people who have to go back to uh, grammar school, uh, active voice is subject, verb, object. So one of the simplest sentences to write is the boy kicked the ball. It's, a, it's not only one of the most simple sentences, but it's easily understood because you start with the subject of the sentence, then go to the verb and the object. So subject, verb, object, rather than the ball was kicked by the boy. Even though that is far simpler than pretty much any communication that our, our listeners have to communicate, uh, it still takes just a little extra thinking. Hmm, what? Why the ball was kicked by the boy. It takes a, just a little extra cognitive, what's called cognitive load, a little mm-hmm. more mental energy. So imagine when you're talking about more complicated things. It's easier to use the active voice. And I found that when I'm analyzing Bezos shareholder letters, for example, uh, the vast majority, more than 70% of the, the words and the sentences fell under active voice. So Amazon announces XYZ, uh, Kindle does this. It's all like subject, verb, object. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an easier way to get information across. But when, if you look at newspapers, okay, old-fashioned print newspapers, it's all active voice because that's what they're trained to do. You only have a small amount of space. So you don't say interest rates are rising due to the Fed's action yesterday. No, Fed raises rates, <laughs> right? right? That, that's why it's, oh, got it. Fed raises rates, which we're hearing a lot about these yeah. days. Uh, in three words, I can tell you 80% of the content. I know that I know who did what. Now, if I want to know the details, like how much did they raise rates? Why did they raise rates? How does it affect me? Now I can read the details. But in three words, I got 80% of the content. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking of uh, Stephen King, another section you have where you say, avoid verb qualifiers and weasel words. You quoted him as saying, the road to hell is paved with adverbs. 
Yes. And in, in Amazon, they actually call them weasel words. In other words, be specific. Uh, give us a specific number. Avoid terms that are just kind of filler. Like, uh, well, it's kind of like this. It's sort of. Sort of like this. <laughs> yeah. And they call them weasel words over yeah. at, uh, at Amazon. They just want you to be precise. Think about every word. Uh, Bezos was very good at this, even in the metaphors and the analogies he's, he used. He was very precise with the language. He thought very carefully about the words, especially about Amazon's mission statement, its vision, uh, the analogies he used. He was very, very precise. And you can tell over the years how he would change things just a little bit, change a word here and there to make it even more precise. Yes. Well, let's jump ahead. You write... On page 61, the secret to catching a person's attention is not to cut through the noise, but to boost the signal. What is a log line? Oh, I love the log line. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, I have a whole chapter devoted to the log line. Okay, the log line is big picture. What is the movie about? Let me give you just a, a quick little history of the log line because people don't understand what that word means. It simply means uh, like a, it's like a headline uh, in, a, in an article or a title of a book or a chapter, but it's the big picture. What is this presentation about? What is this TikTok about? In one sentence, in a few short words, what is this about? You've got to give people the big picture first. There's a lot of neuroscience behind that, but the log line, the reason why I use that is because I was speaking to screenwriters. I love talking to Hollywood types and storytellers and movie makers. And we should, uh, we should also add that Carmine is a graduate of UCLA. So, you know, he is one of the beautiful people. And you also heard that he's a Marketing Book Podcast listener. So you see how it all fits together? Because fits together. Marketing Book Podcast listeners are... Uh, some of the most attractive people you'll you'll find. You'll you'll meet them on the road later on, Carmine. It's amazing how you're putting all this together, mm -hmm. putting the puzzle together. So if you're talking to screenwriters, they will tell you that any movie, almost any Hollywood movie that you watch, whether it's Netflix or in the theaters, has to go through a process where a screenwriter uh, or a director pitches the movie. So they walk into a studio head, or they start. They walk into a meeting. And they have to have a log line. What's the log line? The log line is the movie poster. In one sentence, what's the movie about? No log line, no movie. Because And there's books written for screenwriters that go into this, how to pitch a movie script with a log line. So I thought, what a great analogy or a comparison to what we have to do in business. In one sentence, what's the movie about? I'm not interested in, in watching your PowerPoint for the next 20 minutes <laughs> unless you tell me right out of the gate, what is this movie about? Mm -hmm. Then I'll decide if it's interesting. We do the same on social media, and this is where I think it applies to marketers as well, uh, especially on TikTok. Like, what's that title? What is the title of your social media piece? In a few words, you got to give me a reason to watch the rest of the movie, whether that movie is a 30-second TikTok uh, or it's a 20-minute presentation, you got you have to give me a reason to like it. That's why in communication, when I work with CEOs and executives on new product launches, we spend 80% of our time on that one sentence. Mm -hmm. that, that's really hard to encapsulate everything in one sentence. 
Amazing. Steve Jobs was the, the master of that. Okay. Ah. Bezos is pretty good, but Steve Jobs was the master. But Come on. Bezos is still improving. That was a big always, takeaway from the book. Always, always learning. Growth mindset. Yes. Yeah. But, but Douglas, come on. A thousand songs in your pocket. That, great. I want it. <laughs> Brilliant. You know, <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about metaphors. Uh, plays a big role in the book. Explain the neuroscience behind metaphors and why they are so critical to uh, convincing an audience of something. Oh, I I love I, again. I thank you for bringing that up. Metaphor is so powerful because we think in metaphor, and neuroscientists are now discovering this. Uh, it changed around 1980. They began to realize that uh, we process our world in metaphor. Uh, so whether it's a metaphor or an analogy, we don't have to get caught up in semantics. The point is that we are all looking for a comparison to something familiar. Mm-hmm. And I first learned this, I first really started working on this when I interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson. And Neil deGrasse Tyson, an astrophysicist, said, I, I asked him point blank, how do you make you know, the, these huge numbers so understandable when you're talking about the scale of the universe? And he said, embed the concept in familiar ground. Take a big number and make it relevant to people. He was talking about metaphor, and he's constantly using metaphors. Well, Jeff Bezos is a real thinker when it comes to metaphors. He understands the power. Let's go back to the naming of it. Amazon. Amazon, the name is a metaphor. Earth's biggest river is the Amazon, Earth's biggest selection. He's already thinking in metaphor and comparisons. Uh, He has a well-known motto now called day one. Well, day one isn't a thing, although it's a building now. There's a day one building. (laughs) Yeah. But day one was a metaphor for uh, always thinking like an entrepreneur, always thinking that this is day one of your startup. What would you be doing on day one, even if it grew to a scale of a million employees, always be thinking day one. It's a it's a metaphor, a shortcut for thinking of everything as through a growth mindset lens. Uh, but then if you start looking at all these different communicators, going back to Warren Buffett, who I mentioned earlier, the moat, that's a metaphor, right? That, that, that's an, an analogy. An analogy is simply a metaphor that is then extended for use for education. And that's why I actually broke it up into two different chapters. Right. You say analogies are our communicator's most formidable weapon. Yes. So you maybe we should explain the, the progression because it, it, you also mentioned that the, an analogy almost starts life as a metaphor, but it needs yes. a storyteller to bring it to life. There is a very famous metaphor that's now used in a lot of startups. I live in Silicon Valley. Uh, so a lot of folks will use the flywheel. Have you heard of the flywheel, the flywheel effect? Oh, yeah. Back to Jim yeah. Collins. In fact, I think Excellent. you mentioned that Yeah, in the book. Excellent. Good knowledge. You did read this. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I do, you know. Uh, so, Douglas, the that gets to books, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Jeff Bezos heard about this flywheel metaphor, and it's it's simply a metaphor uh, for growth. Um, a, a flywheel is a mechanical mechanism that once it kind of starts rotating, it gets faster and faster. How do you uh, provide the energy for that flywheel to grow faster? And so he's thinking of it as a metaphor for growth. Mm-hmm. It, but 
in order to explain it, you have to go into analogy and really make these comparisons. So analogy is, is simply a metaphor that's used for educational purposes. So it takes a little bit more of an explanation. So Jeff Bezos will say, uh, if, you, if we lower prices, uh, if we're frugal and we lower prices, we're going to attract more customers. If we attract more customers, we'll attract more third-party sellers. If we attract more third-party sellers, we'll attract more customers, and we could actually have scale and lower prices, which attracts more customers. He drew this out. He actually sketched it. And there, there's a famous sketch. It's called the Amazon flywheel. But to explain it becomes more of an analogy. If I just say um, Amazon is Earth's biggest selection. That's more of a metaphor uh, because it's not really Earth's biggest anything. It's just the name of something. Uh, but when you start using it as an analogy, that's more of an explanation. So it, there's a subtle difference. They're siblings. Mm -hmm. Let's just keep it at that. They are siblings. But what's amazing to me is that when I, one of the reasons why I wrote this book is because I'm ta I talk to a lot of startup companies. I talked to a lot of high-tech companies. They use a lot of the mechanisms and systems that Jeff Bezos pioneered at Amazon, and they don't even realize it's really from Amazon. A lot of them don't even know that. Like they'll say, say uh, our startup, we're the Uber of blank. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. That's a comparison. Um, and uh, you know, the other famous one is the two pizza teams. Uh -huh, That's yeah. another famous analogy. A two pizza team. That in Silicon Valley, you hear that all the time, especially when it comes to product management, product design. You don't want big bureaucratic teams. You want small teams. So someone once asked Jeff Bezos when they were growing Amazon, how big should these teams be? He said, these teams are getting too big. Well, how big should they be, Jeff? Uh, and he said, well, you know, when we first started Amazon, we could feed a team with two large pizzas. So let's call them two pizza teams. Mm-hmm. That's that's an analogy, mm -hmm. and and yet it it catches on. And so I I talk to a lot of folks in different companies who will use that on me. They'll say, "Oh yeah, well this is our flywheel. This is our two pizza. You know, we we call them two pizza teams or whatever." Mm -hmm. And more often than not, I'll say, "Yeah, yeah, you know, that's that's an Amazon thing." And they look at me like I'm from a different planet. They, they've <laughs> never they've never heard that. Um, or uh, six pagers, um, which is another. Amazon, certainly a marketing mechanism, uh, banning PowerPoint and Amazon and turning them into six pagers. If you want to pitch a new product, you have to walk into an Amazon meeting with what's called a six pager. Uh -huh. It's a narrative. It's written word with full sentences and paragraphs. He want, Jeff Bezos wanted to see your thinking, not just read a slide with bullet points. So now a lot of people in Silicon Valley and marketers especially will use uh, narratives. They're, they're called six pagers, mm -hmm. one pagers, narratives. Some people have uh, called them working backwards, which many of your marketing listeners are going to know. That's a document that let's start with the press release first before we start working on the product. What would the press release say? How would customers be you? What would they be saying about this? That's called working backwards. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an Amazon thing. Right. So at, at some point, Douglas, I said, why don't I just write a book on this? Right. We clearly read the same book here because you were reading my screen. These are the last questions I wanted to ask you oh, about. I, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sorry. I no, 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 no. Let's get into it. One thing I wanted to ask you was just for fun. Let's go back to page sure. one of the book. 
In the summer of 2004, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos made a surprising decision that shocked his leadership team. <laughs> so tell yes. us what he did and what, he re- what, what that led to. Bezos banned PowerPoint. And it's a, it's a little of a misnomer to say banned PowerPoint throughout Amazon. I've worked with AWS, which is their big cloud company. I've mm-hmm. worked with senior executives, and they sent me PowerPoints. So PowerPoint is still within the company, but specifically he banned PowerPoint at leadership meetings where they were discussing issues, problems, or pitching new ideas or talking about new features that had to be added because PowerPoint, as he learned in an essay, Jeff Bezos is a big reader, Mm -hmm. constantly learning. He learned in a scholarly essay uh, by Tufty that PowerPoint is an really an inefficient decision-making tool because writing bullets on a screen doesn't really teach you anything. You don't see the connections between things. Mm-hmm. So he decided from one week to another, uh, as of next Tuesday, uh, no more PowerPoints at S-team meetings, the senior leadership meetings. And I talked to a person who actually sent out that email on behalf of Jeff Bezos, and he got a lot of pushback. He got all the calls. I'm an engineer. He expects me to do what? I have to write? That's not what I, you know, well, <laughs> right. get you, start writing, start learning how to write because Jeff Bezos wanted to see your thinking process. He wanted to see a memo. So they started as four pagers, then that turned into six pagers. Uh, but now a lot of companies use, it can be a one pager, it can be a two pager. Just enough, but never more than six, really. That was the Amazon thing. Uh-huh. But I, I say be flexible, adopt it uh, for your own needs. The point is, if you are having a discussion about something new, let's read about it first. What would the press release say? Let's write it out first, maybe as a press release. What would the title be? Um, how would customers be reacting to it? Put in a customer quote but, or take me through a customer yeah. journey, but well, write it out from start to finish. Well, let's go back to the, the term narrative, I think could mean different things to different people. So exactly. you write narrative is to Amazon what an engine is to Ferrari. Explain narrative. And the reason this was so interesting to me was the science behind Tufty's uh, article, The Cognitive Style of PowerPoint, that showed he wasn't criticizing bad PowerPoint pictures. <laughs> he was explaining right, yeah. the, the mental processes and how it uh, leaves all these um, sinkholes behind proper thinking when you're using PowerPoints to communicate to a team. So take us back to like, a narrative. What, yeah. what, is that, what does that mean? Well, Tufty was talking about uh, PowerPoint as a as a tool that actually led to disastrous consequences, yes. like in the in the Columbia shuttle disaster. Yes, um, and and how that that was the I I went back to read what did Bezos read that changed his mind. So I went back to the original article, and uh, it was a very very long detailed article. But it talked about how the space shuttle disaster, uh, the scientist at the time missed some crucial problems that had happened that they would have been able to fix because it was a sub bullet of a sub bullet on a PowerPoint slide. So it wasn't like the main event. It wasn't the title. It wasn't clear. It was just buried on a PowerPoint slide. Mm-hmm. Very so troubling. <laughs> Boy, did it get my attention. Yeah. 
so that's why this whole idea of some people use the word narrative. I use the word storytelling, but a narrative is a story. That's the right. point. That's why I like to, pre I prefer the word storytelling. Bezos is a storyteller. He's asking you to write a story from beginning to end. Why are, why are people frustrated with a particular uh, product category? What is the frustration? What are they looking for? Maybe that they don't need, that they don't even know they're looking for. Um, if we release this product, how would it be released? How would people really use it? What would they say about it? So narrative could be a press release, a fake press release, a what's called a working backwards. It can be a pitch in a word document in a in word form. So I, I like to think of it just as storytelling. Mm -hmm. That narratives is more of an Amazon thing, but I'd like to broaden it out. Oh, okay, uh, okay, yeah, and it's a it's a story. All God, right. He, is, he was a great, he's a good storyteller. And the, I wrote an entire book just on business storytelling. Mm -hmm. That's the other, you know, big part of all this is you have to be a story, not only a simplifier and a good writer, but a storyteller first. Now you can always use PowerPoint to complement the story. But the reason why PowerPoints are so bad and boring is because nobody thinks through the story. They go right to the PowerPoint. PowerPoint is not a storytelling tool. PowerPoint is just a repository to put stuff in and information and to write bullets and text mm -hmm. or to insert picture. But then it's not a storytelling tool. Just like a movie director doesn't start by picking up the camera. They sketch it out. They, they, uh, they storyboard it. What's the story? So I recommend people, especially marketers, look at themselves as storytellers first. Then you can use tools to complement the story. Mm -hmm. The one thing I would add and speaking to marketers, is be careful using the word storytelling around executives who don't know what that means. There are a lot of terms that marketers should be very careful using around civilians. And by civilians, I mean anyone outside the marketing department. Yeah. I, no, I agree because most people don't understand that. Yeah. The, the other thing that's so fascinating is this PR FAQ, which you touched on, where they'll write a press release that's only like yeah. a page long at the very beginning. Uh, that's, work that's backwards to get back. ahead. Yeah. Yep. Talk about that's that. That's working backwards. Uh, so it, it's a an exercise that now a lot of companies have adopted. Uh, and that's another thing, Douglas, that people will tell me. Oh, yeah. we. You know what we do here in uh, company XYZ? <laughs> well, we do uh, PRFAQs. You, you know what those are, Carmine? Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> You write the press release first, right? Yeah. Here's how it works. No, it's okay. It's an Amazon thing, but okay. Jeff Bezos started that. Yeah, they don't even realize it was right. pioneered that. So PRFAQ is fascinating, and I think it's a great exercise for everybody. Even when I'm writing a book, think about writing a one-page press release. That's mm -hmm. not something you hand off to a publicist at the end of a design or a new product launch. Why don't you think about it ahead of time? What is the headline? What would the product be called? How would it be marketed? So I think the example that I use, and it's, it's a good one, is uh, the Kindle, so the original press release for Kindle. Now, remember, this was pretty revolutionary at the time, the ebook reader. Uh, and the Kindle was any book... Um, any book you can you can think of in uh, 
downloaded to your fingertips in 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. It was something like that. That was the title. But it was all about think of a book, download in 60 seconds. Well, that was that turned out to be the press release and how they actually communicated it when the Kindle came out. But it started years earlier when they were mm-hmm. thinking about it. They write the press release first. Yes. And so they think, okay, now if we were to – and I don't know how they came up with 60 seconds. Maybe that was just a marketing term. Maybe it was uh, technical. I don't know how they came up with 60 seconds. But it raises the question. If we had to make it that seamless and that quick, how do we make the product? That's called working backwards from the press release. Now we can start formulating the product to meet that press release. Mm-hmm. It's a what a, a just a terrific exercise. Yeah, and and you write that they're they're trained to write their mock press releases, which they do before they come up with the product. They're trained to write them in Oprah speak. Uh, yes. <laughs> what is that? Oprah speak. So when if you're on this was at a time when you know Oprah's show was big. If you're on Oprah's couch and you're explaining something to her, how would you explain it? You wouldn't explain it in technical language. You would say, uh, "Oprah, you know, you're you're uh, you're a voracious reader. Imagine being able to think of a book and getting it downloaded to your fingertips in sixty seconds. That's what Kindle is. Yeah, that's that's." If you look at the technical specs of how that happens, she wouldn't. Nobody would understand it except for highly technical people. So you have to think about it in Oprah speak. Warren Buffett has something very similar, and I, I don't know if it's in that chapter or one of the other chapters. But did you read the part about uh, thinking? He wrote his shareholders thinking about his sisters. Yeah, Bertie and, um, and Doris. Doris. Doris and Bertie. Yes. Oh my gosh. What a revelation when I came across that. So Warren Buffett writes these shareholder letters about very complicated financial topics. And what he does is he actually, on a Word document, will start by writing, Dear Doris and Bertie. They're his real sisters who really invest in Berkshire Hathaway. They are investors, but they're not financial types. They're not a uh, digging into the financials of these companies every day for the past year. So he's just thinking, how do I communicate uh, to my sisters what's happened in the last year? That's what a shareholder letter is. And then right before he hits publish, he changes it to, (laughs) dear shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway. Right, right. Oh, great. It's great. Well, let's jump ahead to uh, one of my favorite topics and certainly relevant to this audience. To become more successful, Carmine Gallo, explain why reading more books can help. It might surprise some folks. (laughs) Yes. uh, Readers are more interesting communicators. And and the reason why I'm pausing here, Douglas, is because we could have a four-hour discussion on the power of books. Okay. So I'm trying to figure out where. But you talk about how readers actually make better speakers. They're better communicators. They are more interesting people because they pull. They can pull from a wide variety of stories, um, not only of stories, but examples and anecdotes. More often than not, um, in almost every case where I have interviewed or I have spoken to or written about visionaries, innovators, people who are at the highest level of their companies or CEOs or famous entrepreneurs. 
to a person, they read far more than average, far more than the average employee, whether that's ebook, audiobook, some people are more inclined to audiobooks, uh, or print, they're pulling from this incredible base of knowledge. Books offer more compressed wisdom at our fingertips than any other educational material. And I'll kind of put podcasts in there. So podcasts, books, essays, uh, always be learning, always be growing. And that is by definition, sort of the, the, the typical reader of business books, nonfiction books. But I've also talked to, I talked to a Navy Admiral named uh, James Stavidris, and he endorsed my book. He was a former NATO commander and he opened my eyes. He reads more than a hundred books a year. And I hope he doesn't start a podcast. (laughs) And he, and he said, uh, he said, Carmine, Every leader I know is in the military or in, in corporate America. Every leader I know reads far more, you know, than than the average person. Uh, he, he said, "It's I can't imagine how you could even be a leader unless you have this w- breadth of knowledge from what books give you." Uh, but I, he challenged me. He said, "Carmine." read fiction too. Mm-hmm. Cuz I told him I, I read mostly business and nonfiction. He said read fiction. Yes. Okay, because and he said they act as mental uh simulators mm-hmm. for the mind. They're like simulators for the mind. So when he was preparing to take command of a battleship uh, as a navy admiral, he would read, you know, Master and Commander or he would read uh these famous naval uh books, not history books, but like fiction books. And he would put himself in those situations. Uh, Well, think about Jeff Bezos and his space company, Blue Origin. You know what inspired that were the science fiction books he read as a teenager growing up. Mm -hmm. Uh, So again, it's fiction does trigger our sense of adventure and exploration. So I thought that was a really valuable tip that he gave me um, because I am more the the nonfiction business book, and, and I probably am too. And I, and if I'm not reading nonfiction, I really enjoy reading history, particularly military history. I, I know who uh, General, uh, or excuse me, Admiral Stavridis is. I, oh, I've great. heard him on a lot of podcasts where he talks about uh, geostrategic issues and uh, really <laughs> fascinating. I mean, you know, like he'll be talking about the war and the Ukraine and Russia and. China and all that sort of thing. It's really interesting to hear him. Douglas, I'm sure you've had this this um, this experience. So I've talked to James a couple of times. Like I said, he endorsed my book, and, and we talked a lot about the power of books and reading. At the end of a conversation with with him, I always come away thinking, I think I just talked to the smartest guy in, in <laughs> I've ever met. Could be. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, yeah, no, I'm not as smart as him. You know, it's one of those things where, no, I'm not as smart as you. And I can I can acknowledge that based on our conversation. Uh, so he's uh, he is quite fascinating. I love listening to him. He, we, but he's interesting because he reads so much. His answers, he pulls from history, from pulls from um, other types of books. They, they make more interesting communicators. In the book, in the Bezos Blueprint, while I was writing it, I actually talked to an, um, a sports analyst, uh, Brandel Shambly, who, if you follow golf, oh, the golf, yeah, the golfer, very well known in the golf community. He's the most, one of the most interesting sports analysts. 
uh, whether it's golf. Uh, he obviously focuses on golf, but I've talked to him a lot because I've asked him, my God, you're so interesting. I mean, you're talking about Nietzsche and you're talking about philosophers and you're talking about history. Where does that, you're so interesting. Where does that come from? He goes, well, I, I read a lot of books, Carmine. Read a lot of books. Out, and here's the key, Douglas. Here's the key for everybody. Outside of the category. Outside yes. Outside of your topic. He says, I don't read other golf writers. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Oh, that's and, so interesting. Yeah. And that's and people have said that about him, uh, you know, because I've, I've seen him host and, and he'll have guests on and, and they'll look at him like, where did you pull all that? Where did that story come from? It comes from books. Mm -hmm. It makes you interesting. Yeah. You talk about the simulator for the mind. You quoted uh, Joyce Carol Oates. Reading is the sole means by which we slip involuntarily, often helplessly into another's skin, another's voice, another's soul. So it's like I've spent the last week with you. And that's not just because I was drinking massive quantities of uh, Gallo <laughs> wine. So the other thing that I wanted, just a t quick tip for the, uh, for the listeners before we wrap up, on page 169, you wrote, effective leaders read more books than others in the organization, and they share their newfound knowledge with everyone else. And I say that because I have a lot of books on the show about sales, and I'm always encouraging marketers to read at least one sales book a year. And if you found it helpful, share it with your sales team. Lots of good oh. things will happen. Yeah, good point. Very good point. In fact, page 169 um, has, now that I'm looking at it, uh, this is interesting. We didn't touch on this, but it's all relevant. Uh, most of the innovations that Amazon came up with were from books that Jeff Bezos read and then shared with the leadership team. Mm -hmm. So this gets, it, it speaks exactly to what you're talking about. Jeff Bezos is the one who had a book club, a senior level book club. And they were a little peeved because the book club was all year long, even during their summer vacations, they had to get together for the book club, but everything from two pizza teams that was inspired by a book written in the seventies. Um, good to great Jim Collins inspired the flywheel strategy, which was critical to Amazon's growth. Uh, the innovators dilemma inspired the Kindle Sam Walden's made in America inspired Amazon's leadership principles that they still use today to drive decisions and many others. Uh, and, and like I mentioned, it was his uh, Jeff Bezos and his love for science fiction novels that triggered his exploration into space. Yes. And one other idea for you, dear listener, is every Friday, gather everyone together with one or two pizzas and listen to the Marketing Book Podcast. Huh? Huh? There you go. You know, I'm sure you know this better than I do. You know this better than I do, Douglas, but because uh, you've done so many podcasts and talked to so many authors. But there, there's a over, the reason why I love doing this podcast, there's a huge overlap between readers and podcast listeners. Oh, yes. And as a matter of fact, there was a book on the show a few years ago called Traction by uh, Gabriel Weinberg, and I can't remember the other co-author's name. He's the founder of DuckDuckGo. And in, oh. in the book, they it was for startups, you know, it was, it was like marketing for startups, and they, they, they explained that there were like 19 or 17 things that every startup should attempt with marketing, but then test it, and then circle back to like the three or four that are working for you. And they said that there's a lot of copycat going on in the startup world in terms, in terms of marketing. So when they launched their book, they did all 17 of them and tested mm -hmm. them, and they found out that 
nothing was selling their book as effectively as being on podcasts. So they said, quick, <laughs> get on more podcasts. So, uh, oh, that's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah well, I, I've, I have I didn't read that book, but I I've seen similar research, which would make sense because everyone on your they wouldn't be listening this long. Hopefully, we're interesting enough to <laughs> to keep people on here. <laughs> right. But uh, they wouldn't be in, uh, listening unless they were real growth mindset people. Yes, uh, constantly yes. learning, constantly growing, always looking for something new. So between a book that you can listen to while you're jogging mm-hmm. or, or a podcast. This is the guy I call this like the golden age of learning. I, you can watch a Ted talk for free by Bill Gates or all these other or Jeff Bezos you, or Jeff Bezos. You can watch, you can read a book by uh, an Italian guy who has, you know, 20 years of experience coaching CEOs as communicators and talking to former Amazonians, a 200-page book for like 18 bucks, whatever it is, the hardcover. The, no better ROI. No better ROI. That's a good way of putting it. There is mm-hmm. no better ROI. Or spending 30 minutes listening to a podcast and, and getting some, hopefully more than one or two nuggets. I yeah. think we've given people a lot of nuggets. And, and I'm very excited about this. I really think that this is this is a golden age for people who want to learn and improve. So- Finally, the, the last thing I want to ask you about is Jeff Bezos is big on symbols. So how does he use an empty chair as a symbol, for instance? Oh, my goodness. You're getting to one of my favorite chapters because I had never written about symbols. Uh, I've, I've written about Steve Jobs and how to give a better presentation. I've written about TED Talks, how to give a better presentation, how to sp- better how to be a better public speaker. Jeff Bezos completely opened my eyes when it comes to extending the metaphor and the analogy uh-huh. as a communicator and using symbols to communicate. So for everyone who worked at Amazon um, knows that in the early days, especially, they in meetings, they had an empty chair. And there was always an empty chair, and the empty chair symbolized the missing voice in the room, the customer. Always focus on the customer. Remember Jeff Bezos from his first shareholder letter said that our vision is going to be Earth's most customer-centric company. We are going to be obsessed with the customer. So everything was about the mission, customer obsession, which had to be, we already talked about this, had to be at the beginning of the internet. You had to make people comfortable and you had to make it easy. So everything was about obsessing over the customer What's a symbol for that? Small symbols, Douglas, just small. Like an empty chair can be a symbol. Uh, He had door desks, the famous door desks. Like recycled doors? Recycled doors. Mark Randolph told me this, so I know it's true. Mark Randolph is the co-founder of Netflix. He said, Carmine, when when they were looking for some kind of partnership early on, went up to Seattle and asked Jeff, why do you have doors as desks? He bought doors at Home Depot and they took out the doorknobs. And they were the desks. And they put them on like sawhorses. Yeah, they, exactly, they put them on sawhorses. He goes, well, it's a symbol. It, it, it's always a reminder of being frugal. You know, and, <laughs> and it's cheaper than frugality. a desk. Frugality. It's cheaper. <laughs> yeah. So they didn't – everything Everything was a symbol to him. Uh-huh. So day one, it was a metaphor, and then he built a building called the day one building. Then uh, that's headquarters. Uh, he's building a 10,000-year clock in – 
deep in the hills of West Texas. True. He's building a clock that like chimes once every thousand years. <laughs> it's like, okay, come on. I, you know, when you're a billionaire, you can do these things. It'll give us something it, to look forward to, Carmine. But it's interesting. <laughs> See, he's interesting. He does that because it's a symbol for long-term thinking. Yes. Which is one of Amazon's principles. Think long-term, not just what's going to help us in the next two weeks. Yes. So Carmine Gallo, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Something we haven't really touched on. Great communicators are made, not born. Bezos was a voracious reader. He had a growth mindset, always striving to improve his writing and communication. And I think this applies to all of us. Public speaking, good writing, giving a good presentation. Those are skills. Those are skills. And any skill can be sharpened with practice. So don't look at anyone I've written about, whether it's Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs or others, and say to yourself, oh, well, I'm not at that level. Well, neither were they. (laughs) Neither were they early on. They worked at it. It's a skill. Public speaking especially is a skill, and you can improve and become really effective and powerful. Yes, and you talk about how uh, public speaking can raise your value in the workplace by 50%. We didn't even get to all that about the public speaking, but it was interesting in the book where you show how some of their first presentations they ever gave were actually not anything particularly good, but they started and they kept improving. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, well, what, what's one thing a listener could do today to, to put in action from an idea from the book until it arrives? Good communicators are simplifiers. Like Indra Nui said, the most important communication skill that you can develop today is the ability to take complex information and make it simple for the listener or the reader. She said, simplify, simplify, simplify. Mm -hmm. That's her advice. And that is a big part of my book, probably the first, at least the first uh, part of the book. That's simple as your new superpower. So one thing, choose your words carefully. Use short words to talk about hard things. Use the active voice. Simplify, simplify. Mm, Great advice. So, Carmine, looking back, what books have most inspired your working career? Do we do we have two hours, or just? (laughs) Yeah, I bought a bunch of extra audio tape at Costco this morning. So, (laughs) I read. uh, Okay, I I have a list. I have a short list. I can tell you. You asked what books inspired. Your career, your work, Have most right? inspired your work and career. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like, uh, what, what are some of the books that at the right milestone in your life that have really proved pivotal? Yeah. History books. No question about that. Uh, <clears throat> there's one by Doris Kearns Goodwin called Leadership in Turbulent Times. Mm. Have you heard of that book or have you seen that book? I think I have heard of it. And I noticed you mentioned her in the book when you were talking about uh, Lincoln, and I had just watched a yeah. big documentary about Lincoln, and she was in it and thoroughly enjoyed that. Yeah. So, Doris. Did she, did she write Team is, of Rivals also? She wrote Team of Rivals. Okay, that's the one I'm familiar the, with. Uh, yeah. Steven Spielberg. But then later she wrote uh, Leadership in Turbulent Times, and she went through all of the history of these presidents who she admired, including Abraham Lincoln and FDR. Uh, all of them were really good communicators in some way. So FDR was a simplifier. Mm. He could explain the banking crisis to people in 1930s 
on his radio chats yes. in a way that people understood. Uh-huh. Uh, Lincoln, she said, was a storyteller. So she went through all these presidents whom she admired, and she tried to t- show you how they communicate more uh, effectively. So I really like I like history books. Uh, almost everything about Churchill I've read, you know, because he was a amazing writer and chose his words very carefully. I like brain science. Well, let's not forget he had an, an American mother. Okay, he did. That's true. <laughs> I like brain science books, like Brain Rules, John Medina's books. Uh huh. Uh-huh, uh huh. Yeah. I I love behavioral science books, like uh, Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast uh-huh. and Slow. Uh, and in fact, in that book, he talks about to be, th- his quote is something like, to be thought credible and intelligent. Do not use a long word or a long sentence when a short one will do. Uh-huh. Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winner. Don't just take it from me. Take it from him. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and and le- lastly, I'm also into what I, what I call progress books, um, like Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now, uh, but books that make you think a little differently about where we are in, in our society and our, in our lives and give me a sense of gratitude that we're living at pretty amazing time of abundance mm-hmm. um, and resources. So it, it's actually empowered. Those books are empowering because you can see how far we've come. And if, if they could do it, well, we could do it too. Uh, we have the resources and the intelligence and the knowledge to do things. So those are empowering books to me. Interesting. We we ha- seem to have very similar interests in books. We should maybe form a book club and drink Gallo wine. You know, if you and I lived uh, not three thousand miles apart, I will have to look you up when I come to uh, Virginia. Yes, please do, please do. So, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? I'm reading a new book every week, uh, but the one that's on my bookshelf right now that I'm going through is a short one. Have you heard of Smart Brevity by the folks who co-created Axios? Yes, and I even reached out to one of the authors to invite him on the show. And just so people know, I I face rejection every day. So, I mean... (laughs) But I was lucky enough to get Carmen Gallo on the show. But yeah, that looked like a very interesting one. I hope he comes through for you uh, because it's a very interesting book. It's very short, but it's all about how to simplify... Uh, how to simplify your writing. And one, one of the things, remember, they have Axios, okay? They've got a lot more data than you do. They got more data than I do. Yeah. And they have found like a title to a subject of an email or an article should be about six words. So no more than six words. That's, yeah. hard, that's hard to do, but that it all speaks to like simplifying. So I'm actually learning a lot from a book that's about 150 pages. Interesting. Oh, yeah, that's my kind of book. And I actually saw an article that David Merriman Scott wrote about that uh, book. He, he liked it very much. So with any luck, fingers crossed. Um, also, I just got to ask you a quick uh, question. I saw the new catalog from Harvard Business Review that came out with their new books, and there's a book called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People, by an Amy Gallo. Is she any relation to you? <laughs> it's so funny you mentioned that. I know Amy Gallo because she is my editor at Harvard Business Review. Oh! Uh, and But no, no connection at all. Well, you did say Gallo is a very common name, so... I, I love her already. <laughs> okay. We, we got along instantly. 
Oh, great. Great. <laughs> Interesting. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable here, including all the books that have been mentioned to your website, to your LinkedIn profile, to your Twitter account. And now a word to you, dear listener. I want to ask you one big favor. Please reach out in some way to Carmine Gallo. Congratulate him on this phenomenal book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast and putting up with a lot of really stupid jokes. Send him a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or, or website. Guests on the show have told me how much they enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and not just because, as we've discussed, Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so ridiculously good looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is The Bezos Blueprint, Communication Secrets of the World's Greatest Salesman. The author is Carmine Gallo. Carmine, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. To quote you from page 109, most people get bored quickly in business presentation because there's little or no entertainment value. Mm -hmm. And from page 114, this is just for you. This isn't for the audience. Humor Mm -hmm. is disarming. Humor is charming. (laughs) Humor builds connection and trust. What have we got here? A fucking comedian. (laughs) 